Well, good morning or good afternoon or even good evening once again as you join us in our podcast, A Journey Through the Psalms. And I wonder if uh, you're a fan of the Psalms. I presume if you listen to a podcast about them, you probably are. But I wonder if you are simply because so many of them kind of feel and sound a little whiny, judgmenty, outpouring of raffy. Even some of them that start off really good seem to kind of go into a completely different direction. Yet the Psalms themselves are such a powerful message that teaches so much about the Lord. They are a poetical journey which we can go on and discover more and more about the nature of the Lord. And as we do, we can fall more and more in love with him. Today we're going to look at Psalm 2, which if we want to talk about one which often passes people by, because they don't like the contents of it, it sounds the nature of God that's just not popular right now, then hopefully today I'm going to change your mind on this subject and we're going to have a brief look, a light look, at what we can read here in this passage. So if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you just press pause for a moment, have a look at Psalm 2 and then come back and join me. So well done if you've been able to look through that. And it's one of those psalms that when we read it through in its entirety, we think, gosh, that's depressing. The very last verse, verse 12, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled in but a little time. But blessed are all those who put their trust in him. If you kind of speed reading through, as so many people often do with the psalms, And you're just kind of looking for something that's going to lift you up. Oh, friends, this one isn't it, is it really? It's not at the races when it comes to being something that's here to encourage you. Except for it really should be. Because here in Psalm 2, we have uh, the beginning of an instruction that should come out to you. Now, you may or may not know this, but the 150 Psalms that is the book of Psalms is actually split into five sections. They're not equal sections, but they're five sections and they all kind of look at various different things. And there's another part of the Bible that's split into five, and that's the first five books or the Torah, the ancient law books of the Jewish people. Now in the Torah, the very first of those books uh, is the book of Genesis. It's not really a law book at all. It's a book of beginnings. It's a book of history. And just like that book of beginnings, so in our first 41 Psalms, we have the same thing. A book about beginnings, a book about man and his relationship with the Lord. And in Psalm 1, if you haven't listened to that podcast yet, make sure you do get a chance to listen to it. We had a look at uh, what happens to man when he is secure in the knowledge that his eternity is found in Christ, this phrase, blessed, and so it shouldn't have escaped you notice that we've got the same word again. But what has this got to do with man now? It seems very much that it's a conversation about the wrath of God being poured out upon people, and uh, although it's true that we understand at the end of all things there will be a judgment, we might think right now, actually, I don't like this nature, this idea, this conversation about the wrath of God or even 
the judgment of God. There's a sense of happiness that feels like it's coming out in this psalm. So let me stop you there and let's draw back and understand something. Now, whether you know this, whether you believe this, whether you were secure in this, this is a truth of scripture. And remember, this is a beginning statement. This world, the world that we live in, the one that we are a part of, it is corrupted. It's corrupted because of sin. When people ask the question, and they often do, why does God allow natural disasters, shootings, all of the various terrible events that can go on, even down to illnesses, cancers, and children born with disabilities? Uh, Christians can often stutter over the answer to this and give a, almost a, a politician-type answer that's a non-answer answer. But the answer that really should be given back is this creation is corrupted and that's right down to the genetic level the corruption of creation because of the sin and the fall of man is not just because of moral choices or lack of moral choices that we make as we're clear sin is an inherited illness a child who has done nothing yet and doesn't know of good and evil has already inherited that sin nature hence why jesus was born of a woman but not of a man so that he did not inherit that nature within him. Creation is corrupted, and we see that quite often in various different parts of our lives and in many of the things that we see. Creation's crying out for its restoration, and we read that in the book of Colossians. And this is a promise that God has given to us. His kingdom is coming. Israel proved to us in the Old Testament that man can't establish the kingdom of heaven. And our lives today prove to us that the goodness of man does not exist enough to create a worldwide peace. And even if it did, it would be devoid of the Lord. And the only time that ever mankind has been able to work together is when it worked together to shut God out. And so we can see any relationship that's built on the hatred of something else is never really going to last. Therefore, what we're reading about today may feel in its sense to you a dark subject, but actually it should be a light subject. It actually is the understanding of our mission, our goal, and what we are here to do. And that is that one day will be the last day, and the Lord will return, and we will go through a process that will come to what is often referred to as the separating of the wheat and the chaff. And if we remember what we saw in Psalm 1, was the difference between the wheat and the chaff was not one is good and the other is wicked, but the one is blessed in the eternal security of knowing that it is Christ that saved him. If you struggle with the idea that wrath of God and the judgment of God is coming on mankind, then understand that God has done all he can to make sure that that wrath doesn't come down. And if you think, well, why does wrath have to come at all? then understand that if you were the victim of crime today, if somebody was to break in your house and steal prized objects or even to murder a family member, there's absolutely no way that you would be sitting here saying, well, why should that person be punished? Or why should that person go to prison? It just simply isn't a conversation that you would have. You would agree and come to the understanding that justice must be served. We read this uh, powerful message in Second. Peter chapter 3 that many will mock and say well today was just like yesterday and tomorrow is going to be just like today 
all this promise of Jesus coming is never going to happen. And as such, they don't get themselves or their hearts or their position ready. But Jesus told us a parable, and it's the parable of the, the debtor being taken to court. He tells us that make your peace with that man on the way. Now, if you owed somebody a lot of money and you met with them and said, oh, please let me off. If it was a, a bank or something like that, there's very little chance that that's probably going to happen. But here the Lord is saying, I'm the man and I'm taking you to court because there has to be a justice. The challenge is that you can't pay the debt. It's more than you would ever be able to pay back. But the Lord is allowing us to make a deal with him. Actually, he's allowing to let us off. But we've got to do that before we get to the courthouse. And so when we look at Psalm 2, we're talking about what happens when people plan a different way. You know, we read so many times that even though the Lord is love, even though the Lord has sent his son to die so that everyone may be saved, as we see in John 3.16, often people prefer to kill the messenger, the missionaries, the the preachers, the pastors, the Christians. Maybe you've been persecuted in your own workplace and you don't understand why it is when, if we think about the Christian message, which is God loves you, he's paid all of the price, he wants you to have an abundant life within him and he wants you to be what you were created for. It's very hard to see why people falling out with such a statement, but they do. And the reason that they do is they don't want to submit themselves to God. What Psalm 2 indicates to us is that there will be a time that not only will they not just submit themselves to God, but they will work actively against him. And in that working actively against him, we read in verse 1 of Psalm 2, well, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? If you look around the world and ask the question, why is there corruption? Why is it that uh, even what we might have thought as the good nations don't seem to be able to be good enough. The answer that comes back here is when we try to build a kingdom that is devoid or is missing with the Lord, then it will never be built. But of course, also the teaching of scripture is even when we try and build a kingdom with the Lord in, as David says, and he says this at a time when Israel was at its most spiritual, when he was king, he says the phrase, there's none righteous, there's none that seeks after God. And we have to understand that as a principle. God is going to build his kingdom. And there's something about Psalm 2 that a lot of uh, people, when they read it and look at it, they go, hang on a second. There's something about this that's standing out to me. And that is that this psalm sounds a bit like a conversation. But who's it a conversation between? Well, it sounds like it's a conversation between what we sometimes call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to do a podcast on the Trinity. And not because uh, I don't. And not to try and overplay it as though it's a confusing subject. But it is a longer subject. And what we have to get our head around is that God is one and three. Um, the easiest way I've always explained it, although it's not a perfect example, is water. It can exist as a gas, as a solid, and as a liquid. However, unlike water, 
which cannot exist as a solid, a liquid and a gas at the same time, the Lord can. God the Father, he is the Lord. He is the command. He is the creator. God the Son, he is the saviour. He is the coming king. God the Holy Spirit, he is the worker. He is the doer. He is the one whom is going around and bringing life, the Ruach, the breath of God. And when we see that, we can actually see a conversation that's going on. And this conversation goes on between the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son. And they're having a discussion about what the Lord is going to do about a world which is rejecting him. Now, if the world is rejecting him, that reminds us, of course, of the narrative of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, but the rest of the world was not. And so we find out in that time period that there was just Noah left. And one cannot reproduce. There needs to be two. And that's about as physical an anatomy lesson we're going to get in this uh, podcast here. But that's the truth of it. There was only one left. And so there was nothing left to do but to start again. And in that message that Noah went around, he didn't go around teaching and saying, you need to repent so that God doesn't do this thing. He said that this is what's going to happen. But here is the way to be saved from it. And that is to go into the ark. You know that the ark was covered in pitch or tar, as we'd like to call it. The Hebrew word for that is kefir. It's from the root kofa, which means atonement. And so if we think about it, the ark itself was made waterproof. It was covered in the atonement and it raised above the judgment of God. And in the same way, we have that message. And here we see a conversation between the Lord, the psalmist in the spiritual overhearing what it is that was God's plan and writing it down for us to see. In verses one to five, we see the Holy Spirit. He says, why do the nations rage and the people meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers put together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands in two and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven shall laugh and the Lord shall mock at them. And then he shall speak to them in his anger and trouble them in his wrath. Then the father replies, I have set my king on my holy hill on Zion. You know, if you were worried about that first part, well, the Lord laughing and the Lord is going to trouble them in his wrath. That, that doesn't sound like a merciful God. Well, the father's reply to that in verse six, I have set my king on the holy hill on Zion, gives us a wonderful understanding that the Lord is the one who's done the running. The judgment of God is coming and you've got to make your peace with that. But you can make your peace with that by understanding it's right that it comes. But also that the Lord has made a way for us to be saved from it. Not for the good to be saved. As Jesus said, I haven't come to help the righteous, but the, the sick. The Lord has come to save us all, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And that's the expression of his great relationship. Here is the situation. It is we who have come against the Lord, and yet the Lord is the one who chooses to save us. So the son replies from verse 7, I will declare the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I shall give the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. He says to the father, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the expression that we read in the book of Revelation. We see it at the end of Revelation 19 that the, the son comes as a conquering king. Now, straight away, that takes you to the idea, the mask again of battle. But then we understand that what comes out of his mouth is the word of God. This this iron rod that breaks the vessel in two. It does give you this expression and the idea that there's going to be this outpouring of, of murder and death and blood and and all this. And, and people who delight in that, they, they really do have some serious issues but when we start to realize that actually what comes out of Jesus's mouth is the gospel of peace. Remember, he turned his enemy's scorn into praise. He turned around the dark words that they said, even the bad things that they do, even when they attempted to crucify him. It was turned into good with the phrase, his father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That the Lord is not conquering with the sword but with the sword of the spirit, with the gospel of peace. And that's why we as a church are told not to go out in violence, but to go out in peace. And that's why the gospel is called the gospel of peace, so that we understand that that is the nature. And the vessel, what is the Lord breaking? Well, he's breaking, yes, the pottery, the flesh. Just like we read about Gideon, where he breaks the the vessels, the, the lamps are hidden inside, the light is inside, and it only comes out when the clay jars are broken. So the Lord is coming to break the flesh of us so that the goodness of God, the light of God, we who declared the light of the Lord will be poured out. When the Lord comes to his hand of judgment, I often think of when uh, David, who has been exiled because of his son Absalom, who has done these wicked things, who has even set up the whole situation and has denied God, that when the message of Absalom's death comes back to David, he cries this great cry, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if only I could have died in your place. And I believe very firmly that on that day of judgment, when forensically people's books of their lives have opened and the Lord goes through it, it will not be with glee that they are cast away into that place of darkness. But with the very tears of David on his eyes, Absalom, Absalom, my son, why could I not have died in your place? Because he sent his son to die. Now the Holy Spirit speaks to the world. And we know that the Spirit, we're taught this by Jesus, he said it to his disciples in the Last Supper, that the Spirit will come and he will work in the underneath, in the in the spirit we will feel it the dead who have not accepted christ yet they will know of judgment and of righteousness and they will know of god and his glory to come and why will they know of it it's because the holy spirit is at work and so we read now be wise o kings and be instructed o judges of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish on the way when his wrath is kindled in but a little time but blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You see, there's no need for this situation to be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that none should perish, but that all may have eternal life. 
we should all be blessed in that we've all also been wicked. We've all at one point or another been the enemies of God, but there needs to be that time no more. And the spirit is urging. And if you hear the words of violence, then you're not hearing it white. Hear the words of love. When a parent says to their child, if you behave in that way, then you will be punished. Although some might think that that isn't an act of love. It is. There are many things that children have not yet experienced. And it would be the heart of any parent that they would hopefully never have to experience them. Therefore, it's right that we understand and teach. But this psalm ends with a, a great promise. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The security of your eternal life. So where you may have seen death and destruction, don't look on the negative, look on the positive. There is life. There is glory. There is God. And this is worthy of praise. Amen.